So Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that it did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask together that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we discover the truth in your word today. And the truth will be great, greatly helpful to us for the way that we think about the world and our interaction with it, our place in it, our place in our calling in your kingdom, and our own relationship to sin and its influence. God, in your word, by your spirit, speak truth to us today and give us ears to hear and hearts that want to respond. We ask together that you would please help me to teach and preach in a way that's humble and faithful and brings glory to Jesus. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you'll probably remember the weird little vignette from last week. It was the end of chapter 17, where Jesus had some tax debt that was due, as did Peter. And Jesus told Peter, listen, go down to the lake, cast in a hook, take the first fish that you catch, open up its mouth, and there you'll find enough money to pay my taxes and yours. And that was a weird little miracle. I wish Jesus would do that for us around about April 15th every year. He did it for Peter. And in that, we talked about last week, Jesus was endeavoring to teach Peter and the disciples and so us something about the kingdom. Namely, the entrance into the kingdom wasn't going to be about what we could do for God, but rather what God has done for us in Christ. It wasn't going to be about a work that we could perform, but rather grace that has been extended to us 
That it wouldn't be about sacrifices we ought to make, but rather the sacrifice that Jesus made when he died on the cross for our sins. That the way into the kingdom of God, the way into eternity, was by grace, not works. What God has done on our behalf, not anything that we could do. And this kind of blew the disciples' minds. This was a radical paradigm shift for them. That wasn't the structure, the framework that they were coming from in the Old Testament. And so they didn't really know how to evaluate how they were others or others were doing anymore. So they asked that question that we talked about in chapter 18, verse 1. They said, who then, if that's true, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because what they had previously assumed is what we all assume, that the greatest is the one who does the most and does it the best. That's going to be the greatest. But Jesus just turned that upside down with a little fish money incident and the instruction that went along with it. Jesus has turned that upside down because the kingdom of Christ is an upside down kingdom. It doesn't function the same way nor value the same things that this world does. It's no longer about who can do the most, the best, but rather who can trust God for the perfect work he has done on our behalf in Christ. So Jesus then, to teach that point, he grabs a child, takes hold of little children, a child, and puts a child in the midst of all of them. And he says, unless you become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. Now, what was it, consonant with the points we've already made about little children, that Jesus was trying to get them to lay hold of? It was this fact, that the children were powerless in general to do anything for themselves. That kids, this is always true about kids, kids are always and forever and fully dependent upon another for their well-being. It's part of what it means to be a child. And what he wanted the disciples and Peter and us to get is that we are meant to be fully and forever dependent upon what God has done for us rather than what we can do for ourselves or for God as it pertains to eternal life and life in the kingdom and the forgiveness of sins. We're to become like children. God, I am dependent on you and what you've done for me in Christ rather than my own merits, my own work, my own righteousness. Talked about that extensively last week. Just as the child in their midst was dependent and powerless, we are dependent and powerless to save ourselves. And then Jesus kind of switches what's going on. He used the kids sort of as a a metaphor, a picture to teach the disciples and us something. Now he's going to speak directly about children. So in verse 5, he says, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What did Jesus do there? Jesus just tied himself radically to the spiritual well-being of kids and concerned himself deeply with the way that we deal with kids and their spiritual well-being. Whoever welcomes one of these little kids, in my name, also welcomes me. <clears throat> and then in verse 10, we'll skip down there for a moment, and he, he says to us again, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So he's trying to call us to a higher view, he's trying to call the disciples, to a higher view of the spiritual well-being of kids in the culture. Generally in Jewish culture, kids were deeply loved, but they weren't necessarily empowered. 
And he's just calling them, this is a spiritual concern here, to, to be concerned about the spiritual well-being of kids. Welcome them in my name. I'm connecting myself to them and the way that you deal with them. And don't despise such a one because he says this weird thing. Their angels in heaven are always beholding the face of my father in heaven. This is where we get the idea of guardian angels from for kids. Jesus seems to intimate that the guardian angels of, the guardian angels of kids have some special access to God so that when culture or the church or we fail to rightly spiritually bring up kids, there's like a direct report to the father. And there's meant to be a real punchiness or a pungency or a potency to what Jesus is saying here. So let's identify a couple of his reference so that we can understand what he's saying. Notice there in verse six, he talks about the idea of stumbling. And later on, he mentions stumbling. Verse six, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. The word stumble is used frequently in the scriptures and it denotes this idea. It's the idea of causing someone to sin or to move away from truth or to walk away from the true faith. To stumble someone, causing a little one to stumble, is to cause them to sin, or to go away from truth, or away from faith in God through Christ. And the verb carries the idea of entrapment. Something we as adults do, or perpetuate, or propagated, somehow entraps this younger population in their naivete. And they, they should be naive. They're just little ones. They're dependent upon the older generation for some knowledge and some communication about spiritual things. And so Jesus is saying that, that we as humanity, and we as the church, and as individuals have a responsibility to rightly nurture, protect, and raise up kids in their spirituality with Christ. And Jesus says in really punchy terms, to err in that is to err grievously. Return to what he said in verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's a potent picture. Unless, of course, you don't know what a millstone looks like. You know what a millstone is? I have a little picture of a millstone for you. There's a millstone. It's the stone that's sitting vertically on that little other round one. This is a smaller one. What would happen is coming out of the middle, the larger bottom piece would be a vertical pole, and then there'd be a pole going horizontally through the other, which is called the millstone, and it would connect, and someone could walk around in a circle and grind grain inside of that thing. That's the way it happened in biblical culture. That's how they did that. Then there were large millstones, several feet in diameter, and so several hundred pounds in weight, in which they employed donkeys to walk it around because it was so big. And Jesus says, if you cause little ones to err in truth or to move away from the faith or you lead them into sin, it would be better if a large millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea to drown. Punchy. And you know, the, the Jews, they didn't do that. It wasn't like Jesus was talking about some normal form of punishment that happened in Israel. They didn't do that. That was the sort of thing that they would only consider pagans would ever be capable of doing. 
And so Jesus' language here is startling to them. And it's severe. And Jesus is saying very simply that there will be a day of reckoning for those who cause little kids to stumble, to fall into sin, to walk away from truth and faith in Christ. There will be a day of reckoning. And he was talking to his followers, right? He loved these guys. He was with these guys all the time. He's, he's warning his followers directly about that and their relationship to kids. And then he puts the whole world on blast, right? In verse 7, he says, Woe to the world! Because of the things that cause people to stumble, such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. This is a couple of things that are interesting there. He, he says such things must come. The idea there is because of the fallenness of humanity, the nature of sin, work of the devil. These things are going to happen in the world. But woe to the world for its rebellion against God and its subsequent brokenness and sin that happens and woe to those through whom these influences that cause stumbling come. The word woe is a woe is a word of both condemnation and compassion. Jesus said woe a lot of times in the gospels. It was a word of condemnation but also compassion. Because God is merciful and God loves mercy. He doesn't want to condemn everybody anybody but if you get the woe word it's bad news. Woe to the world. And woe to the individuals through which these stumbling influences will come. And Jesus is saying something to us, though it's in, 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 in harsh terms, something that is incredibly good news. He is saying that there will be a day of judgment. A day of reckoning. When these influences and those who perpetrated them and propagated them and promoted them will be dealt with by God himself. The reason that's good news is because sometimes it feels as though the world is out of control in its evil and its evil influence. And you don't have to be a parent for more than a minute to lament the influence on our kids. And the woe might be to whole cultural structures. The woe might be to some teaching institution. The woe might be to some individuals as it is. The woe might be to some forms of entertainment that draw kids away. The woe might be to all sorts of these things. But he's drawing our attention to this reality that God is infinitely and intimately concerned with the spiritual well-being of kids in our world. And that there's coming a day where he himself, when he returns, will deal with the unrighteous and the evil influences that have caused kids to stumble. And we as a church are supposed to say, even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen. But we aren't to only hear the sort of negative injunction that's there, only the woe and the warning. We're also to remember the positive instruction the scripture has already given us. The disciples, being Jews, know, knew full well what God expected of Israel as it pertained to their children. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, through Moses, God taught them this. Moses said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now look. And you shall teach them diligently 
to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That is what God expected and expects of his people. We're to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to remember his words and his teachings. And then we are to diligently teach them to our daughters and our sons. When we're chilling in our house and we're out in other places, the flow and the rhythm, the blessing and the responsibility of being God's people is instructing kids in the truth about the Lord. And you know, that's partly what we try to do as a church. Like when you bring your kids, right now you have about 100 of your kids upstairs for our kids' ministry. And we're not just playing with your kids and giving them goldfish and glitter. I know it seems like that sometimes. But we are endeavoring to teach them spiritual truth and the truth about Jesus Christ and salvation in him. But it is not primarily our responsibility. It is primarily the parents' responsibility. Teach your sons and daughters and talk about truth and the truth of Christ in your house and out on the road. Now it takes a village, so to speak. So we all partner together in that, right? We partner together in doing this. But this is a profound blessing and responsibility and wonder of how we are to deal with kids. The psalmist sort of reverberated this idea in Psalm 145. When he said, great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another. There it is. Older generation commending, talking about, celebrating, communicating the glorious works of God to another. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness." One generation shall praise your works to another. Uh, do you guys remember King Hezekiah in the middle chapters of the book of Isaiah? Uh, through the prophet, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah discovered that he was going to die. God allowed the prophet to go and say, hey, dude, your, your, your ticket is up. You're, you're going to die. <laughs> and Hezekiah, like many of us, didn't feel ready to die. And so he prayed and he asked the Lord, and it says in Isaiah 38 that the Lord extended his life 15 years. That's a good one, right? All the good ones are in the Bible, like pay your taxes with the fish money and then extend my life 15 years. These are good miracles in the Bible. The Lord extended his life 15 years, but he told him, he goes, you got 15 years. Now, can you imagine if God were to say that to you, you've got 15 years, how much everything would come into focus as it pertains to priorities and passions and issues of importance? Right? You'd be reflecting on however it was that you lived your life and whatever was most important to you. And now, gosh, I only got 15 more years. How, how, how do I want to live that out? And what should be important? And what's a priority? And where do I give myself? And in reflection to that, King Hezekiah wrote like a, a song and a prayer. And look what he said smack dab in the middle of it. A father tells his sons about thy faithfulness, God. When he reflected on his life and the extension thereof, on his purpose, his priorities, his passions, and his godly responsibility, he said, it is good that my life has been extended because you know what I do as a dad? I tell my kids about your faithfulness, God. 
This is what a man of God does. This is what a mom, mother, woman of God does. This is what the community of God and the community of faith in Christ does. And so we have the negative injunction, woe to the world and to the persons through whom this influence comes. And we have the positive instruction, diligently teach your kids, declare the praises to the next generation, tell your sons about God's faithfulness. And yet we see, as those who care for kids, don't we see that often kids go astray. And so there's more good news in the text about those who go astray. So I I want us to move down to verse 12. We already looked at verse 10, guardian angels there. You might notice that in some of your Bibles, verse 11 is missing. Who has a Bible in which verse 11 is missing? Raise your hand. Who has a Bible that has verse 11 in it? Okay, so if it's missing, then you have probably the NIV or the NLT or the ESV or one of those. If it's in there, then you have the NASB or the King James or something like that. The reason is different Bible translations throughout history have employed different sets of manuscripts. And there are some things that are in some sets of manuscripts and not in others. So at times, Bible translators have made the choice. Gosh, this isn't like everything else here in all the manuscripts. This one appears in some and not others. So do we include it or not? And they had to make that decision. And they tell us about that in the margins of the Bible. Some manuscripts don't include this. So you're like, if you now have the Bible that doesn't have verse 11 in it, you're like, oh my gosh, what's in verse 11? Not to worry, I'll tell you in a moment because it's also in Luke chapter 19. Now let's read verses 12 through 14 before we get to that. Jesus says about those who have gone astray. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's good news because that tells us that God is not only concerned about stumbling kids going on the wrong path, but he's active about stumbling kids who are going on the wrong path. He says, if there's one going the wrong way, I'm going to tuck the 99 aside here and I'm going to go after that one because as it says in verse 14, your heavenly father is not willing that a single one of them would perish. Now, for better or for worse, the scriptures often depict us as sheep. And if, if you ain't got no sheep, you think that's cute and fuzzy. And you think, oh, he thinks I'm fuzzy and furry. But if you've ever had sheep, you might have a different picture. But the thing about sheep is they, on occasion, wander off. Contrary to where they ought to be and what is good for them in the place of safety and nourishment, sheep often wander. And that is why God employs this metaphor for us because we ourselves are prone to wander. We all do. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of the ministry of Jesus 700 years before he came, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There's that substitution thing that God has done in Christ It's not about a sacrifice that we might make. It's about a sacrifice that Christ made, that God gave for us. It's not according to our works, grace. But all of us, for sure, like sheep, have gone astray. 
The good news in the text, and what verse 11, some of your Bibles tells you, is the same thing that Jesus said in Luke 19.10 when he said this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's the good news for wandering sheep. And our little sheepies, our little lambies that wander in the wrong direction, God is present and active. That's a whole point of the incarnation. God draping himself in humanity in Christ is that he came to seek and to save the sheep that were lost. And God is always at work doing this, seeking and saving. And throughout time, God has endeavored to employ his people in that work. Some of Israel leaders there and others were supposed to be part of God's effort to shepherd his people. They were to be partnered with God in that work. In Ezekiel 34, God says to the shepherds of Israel, you guys stink. You guys have been more concerned about yourself than the well-being of my people, the sheep. You feed yourself and you're concerned about all your junk while my people are suffering. You guys stink. So God says in the second part of Ezekiel 37, I'm going to do it myself. And that's when things get good. It's whenever God says, I'm going to do it. And so God says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on, the cloudy, on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Speaking about those who were instrumental in leading the sheep astray rather than in truth and to God. But look what God is saying here. I am the shepherd who seeks after and cares about and brings into the sheep into a place of well-being. What was the refrain of Israel? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. Israel understood God as their shepherd, who was always caring for them and pursuing after them. And that's good news in the text. Jesus says about these little ones who have stumbled and gone astray, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I'm in pursuit of them. That's good news to some parents of prodigals in this room today. God isn't done. God is in pursuit. But it's also a recommissioning. You know, we are supposed to be involved in the work of God. Throughout history, God has chosen to work through his people rather than independent of his people. And he includes us in his work because he loves us. That's what love does. Love includes. Love incorporates. Love brings in and involves. This is what God does with us in his passionate work 
of shepherding his sheep, of caring for, of finding the lost and the strays and bringing them back into a safe and healthy place. And so we now, as God's people, are meant to be engaged in that work with one another. You'll remember Hebrews chapter 3. It says, take care, brethren. So it's talking to us, the church. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's synonymous with stumble. That's that stumble language there. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hear that phrase. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a little bit of like grammar coming out from that verb that we looked at to stumble, which carried in it the idea of entrapment and some sort of naivete. And and, and to be perfectly honest, we are, I think the scriptures would say, too naive about sin and its effects. And you know, sometimes as wandering sheep ourselves... We just, we need someone else to come along and say, hey, 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 little sheepy bro. Hey, little lammy sister. Don't go that way. Let's come back this way. Right? That's what the church is supposed to do for one another. And that looks like uncomfortable things like accountability and transparency and honesty and community. That's why, like, we invite you guys to the men's group over and over because you're the worst of all the sheep, you men. As am I. That's why we do, you know, different stuff that we do as a church. Try, try to like build a little bit of structure and a little intentionality around taking care of one another in this way. Partner with God in his work of dealing lovingly, restoratively with strange sheep. It's part of what the church does for one another. And then we also do this for, for the sheep of the world, right, that are wandering away from the truth. Look what Paul told Timothy and us as well. The Lord's bondservant, that's you, Christian, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. That means able to teach basic spiritual truths from Scripture. And patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Pause right there. That's an important phrase. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. You know what the world says to us? You know what the world endeavors to do to us? The world says, don't you dare correct someone in opposition to the truth of Scripture or the truth of Christ. You better not do it in the workplace. You better not do it in the schools. But you know what the word of God says? Correct those who are in opposition to the truth of Scripture and the truth about Jesus. Listen, don't let the world tell you to be quiet about Jesus. You know what they say the moment you're saying something? They say, you're shoving it down my throat. No, I'm not, dude. I'm just telling you you're stone cold wrong. And that Jesus is right. And here's what the holy word of God says. I'm not shoving it down your throat. In fact, I will try to obey the text in 2 Timothy and with gentleness, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. You don't have to be one of those jerks with a sign hanging off you, yelling at people with a megaphone. That doesn't help. But in gentleness, in your relationships, in the workplace, at your school, in your family, with your friends, at the beach, correcting those who are in opposition, man, that's that's a gutsy thing. Right? Like we, we have lived in a culture that says be quiet about it. And you know, truth is all relative anyway. So that's your opinion. That's the way you interpret it. That's what's right for you. That's a bunch of... You know what that is. 
but perhaps we would gain a little, mm, some guts uh, and some boldness if we are reminded of what is at stake, the second part of the verse. Correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's gnarly, that's gnarly stuff. Think about our kids, think about our neighbors, think about our community, think about ourselves, having been held captive by the devil to do his will. And so Peter would later on write, perhaps with these things in mind, and say to us, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, right? Make sure that Jesus is Lord, not you. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There it is again. But notice what it says. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. First of all, the second part, man, that's even a challenge in and of itself. We are as Christians to live in such a way that our hope in Jesus and the hope of resurrection and his return and the truth of salvation through Christ like emanates from our life in some way that people can look at the way that we live the way that we celebrate, the way that we grieve, the way that we hurt, the way that we deal with anger, the way that we forgive. Someone could look at all those things and say, man, you have a different sort of hope working in you. That's the hope. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that we'd have this different essence of salt and light in our lives that people would then inquire about it. And then it says, be ready. If anyone asks you, what? what? How can we be able to deal with that? Or how did you get through that? Or why do you see it that way? Or why are you committed to that? Or why, why, are you, why are you different? Be ready to give an answer. That is to be ready to tell people the truth about Jesus. Every Christian needs to be ready to do that. That's why we do things like offer classes on evangelism. We're trying to help one another to learn how to do that, to verbalize the truth about Jesus Christ. This is part of our purpose in this world. Again, God, because of love, including us in his work, we're we're a part of the sheep-gathering, loving effort of God. Now, admittedly, it can be, like, scary to verbalize the gospel to people. I'm like, I don't sweat it. You put me on a stage in front of you guys, I'll, I'll preach all day long, as you know. But you put me, like, surfing down at the beach with a friend, and they start asking me, like, deep spiritual questions, I freeze up. I'm sorry that blows your image of me, but I'm like, um, uh, I just get nervous in those moments and it's hard for me to like verbalize the truth about Jesus. And so <clears throat> I came to a point in my life where I took this verse seriously and I said, you know what I got to do? Like I freeze up and my mouth gets dry and I don't know what to say. So I just got to like practice it so the gospel falls off my lips easily. So I used to drive around in my car preaching the gospel to myself. And I wasn't even exactly what the sure, sure what the gospel was. So I like did this little Romans road thing where there's like nine verses from Romans. It talks about what the gospel is and how we're sinners and we need to be saved through Jesus and four spiritual, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just like kind of memorized this little loose outline. And I would just be driving down the road at the time I was going to UCSB, commuting from CARP. And I would the whole way there, because UCSB was a killer mission field, I would be like practicing preaching the gospel as I'm driving out loud, verbalizing it. So that the words of the beautiful truth of Jesus were familiar to my tongue and to my lips. 
So I didn't freeze up so radically in that moment. And then as I began to like get more comfortable with that, then I would, whenever I was driving with a friend, I'd say, hey, let's practice this together. So you be a heathen scumbag and I'm going pr- <laughs> to like be sharing the gospel with you. And then you ask me tough questions. Like you try to stump me and tell me I'm stupid and all this stuff. So we would role play. And we do that just driving down the road. Myself and Pastor G, we used to do this all the time. In fact, we used to work out at the Y together. I know you can't tell that I ever worked out, but G obviously worked out. We worked out at the YMCA together and we'd always go in the steam room and we'd do it in the steam room. Because you know, the steam room, it's like hot. You want to get out really quick, but you should stay in there for a long time. So that was our little routine. Okay, G, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. You pretend like you're not a Christian and then like ask questions back. And there's always other guys in the steam room. So maybe that's like sneaky and underhanded, but we would just practice in front of people and then hope for the best. It was awesome. It's a true story. The salient point is we're all given the wonderful blessing and honor and privilege and responsibility to be able to communicate spiritual truths about Christ, our lostness, and what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross. Be ready to give an answer. The beautiful work of bringing in the lost sheep. I find so often though, you know, Jesus mentioned kids here, the kid, these kids that are stumbling and then lost sheep we talked about in the church and outside the church. I find that often the one of the biggest problem, like the most wayward one is me. I'm, I'm the sheep that strays so often. And so Jesus says something in this text that really punchy, potent, powerful, pungent. Look again in verses eight and nine, and this is where we finish. Jesus says to us, wandering little sheepies here, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, right? Remember the definition of stumble, going to sin, away from truth, away from the faith. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Those those are tough words. I think what Jesus is doing here while he's talking to the disciples about kids and about wandering sheep is he wants them, as he always does with us, to take a real hard look at themselves and their relationship with sin. I want you to hear that phrase. Their, our relationship with and to sin. And sinful influences that might cause us to stumble. What is the definition of stumble again? right? To go away from truth, to sin, to move away from the faith. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to take sin seriously. That's like serious language. If, if your hand or your foot is the problem, cut them off. If your eye's the problem, then gouge it out. Now, obviously, maybe it's not obvious to you, but it ought to be obviously Jesus is not telling us literally to cut off our hands and our feet when they make us sin because we would all have none already at this point. And the whole I thing would only work twice. 
He's not literally telling us to do that, but what he is literally telling us to do is to deal ruthlessly with sin in our lives and sinful influences in our lives and our own proclivities towards sin, our own enablements of sin. He's calling us to deal ruthlessly with those things. You know what much of the problem is with us as Christians? We're not that ruthless with sin. I mean, let's be honest. We, we like flirt with sin. We harbor sin. We hide sin. We look for sin. We rationalize and justify sin. But very seldom are we ruthless with sin. And this is a, a clear moment of introspection where Jesus is saying, man, if there's something in your life that is causing you to stumble, some sin issue, deal ruthlessly with it. Cut it off or gouge it out. What in your life, what in my life needs to be cut off and gouged out that I would not be led into sin, into error and away from the truth and from the faith? Deal ruthlessly with it. Maybe it's a a place you frequent. Maybe it's a relationship that you have. Maybe it's a space that you inhabit. Maybe it's Maybe it's a device that you have. I mean, Jesus is calling us to deal radically with sin. If it's your device, are you serious enough about what Jesus says to do something radical and get rid of it? Well, how could I live without a smartphone? Jesus did. <laughs> if it's your internet, are you willing to like be, if Jesus had cut off your hand or your eye gouge out, are you willing to do something radical? Like, yeah, I, I got to turn that thing. I can't handle it. I got to turn that. That's causing me to stumble. Or a certain relationship? Maybe it's a certain substance that you have a relationship with? What is your relationship to sin? And what needs to be radically and ruthlessly dealt with and cut off or gouged out in your life? Because Jesus says something that's so radical here and so uncomfortable. He actually affirms the doctrine of eternal hell. He says it would be better to deal ruthlessly with sin in your life than spend eternity in hell. He tells us about the duration and the place. It's how serious sin is before God. And the truth is that unrepentant sinners, apart from putting their faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the forgiveness of sins, go to hell. And if something is that wrong before God that it's condemned for all of eternity, shouldn't we then as God's people reassess our relationship with it? Sin? And stop flirting and start dealing ruthlessly? with it in our own lives? I find, like Paul found in Romans chapter 7, it's not usually an issue like some child on my part that there's a naivete there and I'm just trapped and I didn't know better. I find that I almost always know better. But I am just prone to wander and rebel. And the good news here is that Jesus doesn't give up on wandering sheep. He is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, who lays down his life for the sheep and came after us. And through laying down his life, he has given us the ultimate victory over sin and the power of new life. And he's put his spirit in us so that we have become the daughters and the sons of God. And we do not need any longer to live under the identity of wandering rebellious sheep, but loving sons and daughters of God the beloved of God.
And that causes us to live differently. Because, as Jesus said at the end, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of you should perish. So we'll close this morning right now. Notice I'm a preacher. I said close twice. The last one was like 11 minutes ago, but we'll really close here. I want us to pray as a church. You know, like, churches should pray. Sometimes I say, okay, church, we're going to pray, and people give me a dirty look. I'm like, don't give me a dirty look for asking you to pray in church. What what did you think you were doing when you came here? So I'm actually not going to ask you to break up into groups and pray or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you as we move into the second set of worship in a moment here to have a prayerful attitude. First of all, in light of the text, I think we need to pray for the spiritual well-being of kids in our community. Like that's something that's really near and dear to the heart of Christ. And then I think we should pray for people in our lives, whether it's in our church or outside the church, that are wandering sheep who need to hear the truth, who need to have the love of God in Christ recommunicated. And we should, we should pray to them. And, and, and they'll be willing to be the answer to prayer. What if Jesus asked you to do something about it? And then finally, we should pray about our own waywardness. Right? That, that looks like repentance. Cutting off is repentance. That's what it means. To gouge out and to cut off is to repent, to go in the other direction from that sin. So the prayer team's going to come up in a minute, and it's just the lamest thing in the world in a church when the prayer team stands up there for 40 minutes by themselves. So let's be a church that prays. You know what? Nobody's going to think when you get up and you go to get prayer from the prayer team, nobody's going to think, oh, that dirty, rotten sinner, I knew they were a wayward sheep. (laughs) Nobody's going to think that. So if you need help, if you need help cutting something off or gouging something, like go and ask the prayer team to help you. They're mighty in prayer. They're all prayed up. They'll lay hands on you, anoint you in oil, pray for the Holy Spirit, do a fresh work in your life. Maybe you want to pray for them for your wayward kid. Maybe you want to pray for them for, with them for our community or just pray with one another, but let's be a church that prays. And then let's remember communion is here. To remember the fact that the good shepherd has laid down his life for us, the wayward sheep, and that we have become the beloved of God. So let's celebrate communion together today as well. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word the way that it helps us and forms us. And we ask the Holy Spirit, as we respond now in prayer and in worship and the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would just do a good work in us, helping us to see sin rightly. Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus rightly as high and exalted and worthy of all of our praise and the fullness of our lives. Teach us to love Jesus more than our sin. Teach us as a church the beauty of repentance. Thank you that the Apostle Peter said to all of Jerusalem that times of refreshing come when we repent because we enter the presence of the Lord. Thank you for the gift of repentance. Thank you for your presence among us as we do so. Refresh us with your love, God. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake.